Welcome to SGO On The Go, where we discuss advances in GYN oncology research, clinical practice, and other topics within the subspecialty. Today, we're bringing you the inside scoop on surgical trials, how to get started, get funded, and enroll multiple clinical sites on a tight budget. To help us answer these questions, we have with us special guest, Dr. Emma Rossi, the principal investigator on the famous FIRES trial. Before we get started, we'll take you through a brief summary of the trial. Dr. Michael Kelly is an associate professor of GYN oncology at Atrium Health, Wake Forest Baptist in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and he'll be providing us with this background info. Dr. Kelly? This trial is a comparison of sentinel lymph node biopsy to lymphadenectomy for endometrial cancer staging. Surgical staging with lymphadenectomy defines recurrence risk and helps clinicians make adjuvant treatment decisions in patients with intermediate and high-risk endometrial cancer. Although lymph node dissection has not been shown to be associated with improved survival, the authors emphasize that pathological assessment of lymph nodes is important because patients with nodal disease have a survival benefit with the addition of chemotherapy. The authors also point out that comprehensive pelvic and periodic lymph node dissection is often not feasible due to technical factors in obese populations. And this procedure is associated with major comorbidities, most notably significant lower extremity lymphedema. Therefore, sentinel lymph node biopsy is an attractive option that could potentially provide staging information while reducing the morbidity of comprehensive node dissection. The primary objective of the FIRES trial was to estimate the sensitivity and negative predictive value of sentinel lymph node mapping using specifically robotic-assisted fluorescence imaging of the tracer ICG in detecting lymphatic metastases in patients with endometrial cancer. The trial was a multi-center prospective cohort study in which consecutive patients with clinical stage 1 endometrial cancer were enrolled from 10 participating sites throughout the United States. All histologies were included, and clinical stage 1 was defined as the absence of extrauterine disease on physical examination and cross-sectional imaging. A standardized dose of ICG was injected into the uterine cervix at 3 and 9 o'clock to a depth of 1 centimeter. Sentinel lymph nodes were identified and removed, followed by completion pelvic lymphadenectomy according to the GOG surgical handbook. Pelvic lymphadenectomy was required. Periodic lymph node dissection was performed at the discretion of the surgeon. Sentinel lymph node specimens were processed by a standardized ultrastaging protocol that is well described in the published manuscript. Sensitivity was defined as the proportion of patients with node-positive disease who had successful sentinel lymph node mapping and had metastatic disease correctly identified in the sentinel lymph node. Negative predictive value was defined as the proportion of negative sentinel lymph node specimens that were associated with negative non-sentinel lymph node specimens. 385 patients were enrolled between the years 2012 and 2015. The median patient age was 63, and the mean BMI was 33, with a range of 18 to 61. 29% of patients had high-grade endometrial pathology, as defined as grade 3 endometrioid or non-endometrioid histologies, and 12% of patients had metastatic disease identified in their lymph nodes. 80% of patients ultimately had stage 1 disease, and 15% of patients had stage 3 disease. Periodic dissection was performed in 74% of patients with high-grade tumors. 
Mapping identified at least one sentinel lymph node in 86% of patients. Bilateral mapping occurred successfully in 52% of patients. Isolated positive periodic sentinel lymph nodes were detected in only 3 of 340% patients or less than 1% of patients. Additionally, 17% of patients had positive sentinel lymph nodes found exclusively in regions lying outside boundaries of routine lymphadenectomy. 97% of patients had their disease correctly identified in their sentinel lymph nodes, at which time the study was stopped based on predetermined statistical criteria that is well described in the published manuscript. Of the 258 patients with negative sentinel lymph nodes, 257 truly had negative non-sentinel lymph nodes, resulting in a negative predictive value of 99.6%. 40% of patients with positive sentinel lymph nodes had additional positive nodes in their non-sentinel lymph node specimens, and the sentinel lymph node represented the most distal level of metastatic disease in 80% of patients. The authors conclude that sentinel lymph node biopsy is equivalent to lymphadenectomy in the staging of endometrial cancer, and patients with negative sentinel lymph nodes can be reassured that this result is accurate. The authors also emphasize that sentinel lymph node algorithms have the highest accuracy if each hemipelvis is viewed as a separate diagnostic unit. Side-specific lymphadenectomy should be strongly considered on unmapped sides. Finally, the authors suggest that their results can be generalized to many practices since this study included multiple sites and surgeons in academic and community settings. Thanks, Dr. Kelly, for that overview. Next, we're joined by Dr. Kate Mills, who will be interviewing our guest, Dr. Emma Rossi. Hi, I'm Kate Mills. I'm one of the faculty members at the University of Chicago, and I'm really, really excited to welcome our speaker for our podcast today, Dr. Emma Rossi. Well, hello, everybody. I'm Emma Rossi. I'm one of the GYN oncologists at UNC, University of North Carolina. Very excited to be here today with you, Kate. Thank you so much uh, for spending time with us. We are really excited to talk about the famous FIRES trial today. I was hoping that you might be able to give us the inside scoop about this study. Um, I think there's a lot of curiosity in the membership about really how to make this happen especially amongst young kind of budding investigators. So if you wouldn't mind just summarizing for us, what's the story of this trial? How did it come to be? And maybe we'll start there. Yeah, so when I was a fellow at UNC, um, I was blessed that my one of my mentors, Dr. John Bogus, had a lot of connections with uh, the surgical company, Intuitive Surgical, that obviously makes the robot that many of us use. Um, and he, because of his connections there, he was often being shown new developing technologies. And one of the technologies that he was shown once when I was actually a first-year fellow was uh, this ICG, Indocyanine Green. Um, and he was asked if he thought that there was any application for this. And he sort of thought, well, it might be an application maybe for sentinel lymph node biopsy, but he wasn't really personally very interested in pursuing that. But he brought that, he really introduced that to me and said, hey, Emma, you know, do you want to kind of look at this? So my fellowship was really, my fellowship research was really looking and developing prototypes and work with, could ICG be used for sentinel node mapping for GYN cancers using minimally invasive surgical platforms? And we kind of showed that it was feasible and we could do that. And I was just so excited when we mapped our first patient as part of that research study when I was a third year fellow. And 
And I thought this, I just knew that this was just this incredible technology that could really change the way that we staged endometrial and potentially other cancers. But I knew that we just didn't know if that was safe to do from a staging standpoint. And there was, this was by no means a novel concept, right? Like this is back in 2010 at that time, 2011. And there was a lot of work being done in this space by particularly Dr. Nadim Aburastam um, at Memorial Sloan Kettering, who was a real pioneer in this field. Also work that had been done in Europe using blue dyes and radio label colloids. But those really were not very feasible techniques for our patients, as well as, you know, a lot of the studies that had been done were really single institution series. Patients were not necessarily completely staged along with the sentinel nodes. So we just didn't really have that conclusive information that it could replace staging. And right at that same time, right, was right when GOG-173 was being published, which was, of course, the vulva cancer sentinel lymph node study, which changed practice for vulva cancer for most of us in that we now learned that it was safe to just do sentinel nodes for vulva and how much better that was for patients. And so really it was this storm, perfect storm of like, I, I felt like this passion right as I was leaving fellowship. Well, this is this incredible technique that we've kind of honed. It might be so much more feasible for than these other older endometrial cancer sentinel node techniques. And we've just seen this great example in vulva cancer of how we can run a study that establishes the accuracy of the technique. And so really I, you know, once I graduated and then at that point moved to Indiana university, I said, I want to do that study. I want to do what they did in vulva. I want to know not just that this works, but that it's safe. And my first, you know, the first thing you think of, well, this is a big study, just like, you know, the vulva cancer study, this has to be run through GOG or NRG. I think it was transitioning to NRG at that time, but that's a really big cumbersome process, you know, um, at that point, you know, so the NIH really doesn't have a strong desire to fund big surgical trials. That's why we don't see a lot of them, sadly, being run through that forum. The other problem with running trials through those platforms is you lose a lot of that control, um, it go, which is in some ways good because it goes through many, many eyes and brains and gets uh, so much more feedback on the trial and honed and perfected, which is a good thing but it also really prolongs the performance of the trial and getting it up and going. It can make a trial take years to even start enrollment. In fact, there was a sentinel node study at that time that was slowly moving its way through GOG, which actually ended up dying and never being conducted at that time. So, so I said, no, I'm not going to do that. I, you know, I've already done this work as a fellow with much, much smaller trials, but I, I think I can do this. So I I'm going to look at what was done in Volver. I'm going to do a similar trial and I'm going to do that myself. <laughs> and I had all this passion and energy. I just graduated. And, you know, when you just graduate, you're actually, even though you're busy, you're not really as busy as you end up later being because your patient lists aren't quite as full yet. And your academic admin days, you don't quite have as many meetings on them as you end up having. And so it's actually quite a perfect time to really spend that quiet time writing protocols, writing IRBs, writing, you know, getting stuff done. And so it was sort of a nice opportunity in that first year to, to write up this, this study. And I had all the naivete of like a junior faculty person of like, I can do this myself. And, and so, and so I, I seized that energy and that passion. It's impressive, right? I think everybody agrees. It's very impressive that you were able to get this going. And I think, um, 
you know, one question that a lot of folks might have is, you know, yes, I've got the passion. I'm really excited about this study. And I, especially in surgical studies, I agree, you know, I, I've tried the central method. Nobody wants to hear me or I presented it and it kind of got kiboshed. How were you able to get such a large study off the ground without the support and the funding and the this and the that of a central mechanism? Like where, where did you go to, to get that off the ground? Yeah. So passion is one thing, right? Which we talked about, but the other thing is capital and that fits into two categories, people and the kindness of others, right? So like, it's like the absolute capital. So the money to hire the people to run the trial, right? And any other materials you need. And then the social capital, that's the kindness of others. That's friends, mentors, other collaborators who give their time and effort for nothing, right? For really, for, for, for science itself or for their, their belief in you and belief in the question. And so the capital part of it, that sort of, where do you get the money? So for many surgical trials, the benefit is you often don't need to spend money on drug, right? Which you do for sort of the clinical trials that we're, that are more common, which are the drug trials, which can be very expensive. Like cost of drug can be very expensive. Now, obviously, in this particular study, there was cost of drug ICG because this was not a standard technique. We had to, and ICG is off-label, still is to this day. Oh, well, that's not entirely true, but it's certainly with use of the robotic platform, it's off-label for this. And so so we had to purchase that drug for the, the study, but it wasn't, a t- fortunately, thank goodness, was not an expensive drug. So that was a small little chunk of money that we needed. But the biggest monies that we needed were to pay for a person so now you really need a study coordinator if you're doing an investigator-initiated study. You need somebody because you're a busy clinician usually, and you're uh, and you need somebody who's going to be looking at all of the regulatory documents, making sure all the checklists are done, making sure that all of the sites are doing if you if it's multi-center, all of the things that are being done as the information's coming in from left, right, and center as you're updating your IRB that it goes out and that there's the correct. IRB in the clinic where you're consenting your patient, the most updated one in the clinic where you're consenting your patients, et cetera, et cetera. And having a person, a, you know, a, a person present to do that is necessary. And people in that role, typically, if you know, that's a salary that depending on the region of the country you live on could be anywhere from around maybe with, because consider you also have to pay for benefits, maybe 40 to $60,000, maybe a year. So it's a renewing thing every year of your study. If you have that right person, it's money very, very well spent. That uh, that person makes your study happen, or people if it's multiple people. Um, so that's the, that's funding that you need to consider as well. It's almost impossible to do the level of regulatory that you need for a well-run prospective trial by just by yourself. And I think you know certainly if you're at an academic institution, you may have fellows and residents who are available to you as manpower. My experience, both personally as being one in one of those, as well as having utilized those persons in trials, is that while being well-intentioned, they don't have the same background and experience and knowledge in regulatory or how to run trials, how to fill out the documents that are necessary, making sure that they're logged in the correct way, the organization that needs to be done, the clerical kind of aspect to it. And also understanding the importance of some of the IRB stipulations and regulations. And so relying on fellows and residents, which may seem like free labor in your trial, is not a great idea. Um, And it's better to invest in a person who is dedicated to that. What I can say is for 
anybody who's listening who runs divisions um, or practices, having pay investing in that person for your practice or for your division so that they're available to junior faculty before they've written the successful grant to pay for that person is invaluable. And I was blessed that in, in the FIRES trial, Melissa Aid, who had been out a division's administrative assistant, she and she was brilliant. And our division chief recognized how brilliant she was and organized and smart, gave her sort of a raise into a role as our division's uh, research coordinator. And I jumped on her and she became my research coordinator for FIRES and trial would not have happened without her. Eventually, once I got funding, and I can tell you how I did that, she, I was able to pay her salary during those years, but she was there even before that funding was present. And that was crucial. So if you can have somebody, if you can, if you can discuss with your division chief or your practice leaders, having that kind of person in that role, it really will help these trials come to fruition. Um, if especially if they're there before you get the grant funding. For me, getting the grant funding happened. So I was introduced after I had joined to the to the director of the Cancer Center, a wonderful man, Dr. Pat Lara, um, a giant in the field, particularly of germ cell um, chemotherapy research. And he, I met with him, I had the protocol already written, but it was mostly a meeting where I discussed my idea and my dream for, for fires. And he really just took a leap of faith on me and I guess saw that there was potential and he provided me with a startup fund. Now, this is this is always best asked for when you're transitioning jobs. So for all of the younger people out there thinking of going, changing or going into your first job, uh, if you think you might want to run a trial, or if you know you have an idea that you want to come to fruition, ask to meet with either the cancer center director, the chair, both, and discuss a startup fund as part of your contract. I didn't have that, but I was fortunate and blessed that I had the chance after soon after I started within the first year or two to meet with him. And he granted me that after the fact. That was $50,000, which was huge. And then I applied for institutional grants. So one was called the IU Health Values Fund. So, But there are a lot of these grants that exist in your institutions. That one was for $50,000 as well. There are other, that's a, usually a pretty good amount of money for at least a year or two. Once again, that can pay for the salary of your research coordinator, um, pay for devices or drugs that you might need for your study, pay for auditing of sites outside of yours, et cetera. So look at places, look at your institution. There's often a new investigator or junior faculty awards that, that are looking for people like you who have an idea and need some funding. Look at places like ASCO. They have a, a junior investigator or young investigator award. The SGO have great um, awards through their um, Foundation for Women's Cancer that specifically are looking for junior young investigators uh, applying rather than senior people. So look at sources like that. And then the final place to look, and I didn't look at this source, but a lot of people well is obviously industry. Now for drugs, this is where a lot of funding comes for drug trials. For surgery, it comes a little less frequently. Um, device companies are a little more hesitant to provide funding for trials. They don't find that they need to, is, this, is the short. The ROI isn't really there. They know people are going to use their devices regardless of whether they fund a trial. And so, and the reason I didn't seek out funding from industry, a lot of the reason was I really kind of had this, I get maybe Pollyanna sort of view of, I didn't want to be corrupted. By, I didn't want them controlling my trial. I didn't want them controlling what I would publish. And 
you know, that's not to say you shouldn't. I think it's better to have the funding and support and get the science done than to not. But for me, I kind of, that was sort of a last resort and I didn't, and they were not particularly interested um, in funding it. And, and so I, and I wasn't particularly interested in seeking them, but, but if you're struggling to find the sources of funding through your institution or through those big organizations like SGO, Foundation for Women's Cancer, ASCO, et cetera, look to places like industry to see if they might be interested and they and they can they can often give you some sort of startup money as well. That's really helpful. I think um, a lot of the young investigators are oftentimes at a loss of where you know you should go to look for this money. And obviously, we all know to do the science successfully, you have to have some funding. I think one um, question, kind of bouncing off of that, is how are you able to negotiate and navigate the multi center piece? Because a lot of these institutions, even if they're you know, your mentors or friends or whatever, they're enthusiastic, but when the concrete contract comes through, you know, their research funding may not exist and then they need you to provide some sort of funding for them to get you the data points you need or to do this intervention or whatever. How were you able to navigate that situation? So a lot, uh, this is the, this is the social capital piece. So the first site who came on was my former fellowship site, right? So UNC, my now current home. And they really signed on just once again, that was that goodness of loyalty to me and the project. And the fellows were that capital, right? To begin with, um, until they had their own research person here who then took over. And that person was already sort of funded through internal funding. And so they were good enough to loan her to our project's work. At the SGO in 2012, when I presented the sort of the images of Firefly for Sentinel node mapping, I was approached by Dr. Lynn Kowalski, a wonderful G1 oncologist from Las Vegas who practices in Las Vegas in a community practice. And she just thought, she just thought this was a great technique that had promised and wanted to be involved. So at the end of the talk, she came up to me and she asked, could she be involved? And that was the start of their incredible involvement in the project. And, and as the project evolved more, there was more and more interest from people like that who heard about it or saw about it and said, I want to be part of this trial. Another example was the University of South Alabama in Mobile. They were an incredible site who recruited so many patients. You know, as we kind of went along, they they kind of learned. Now, many of these sites had their own research coordinators. For example, the site at Cincinnati was a community practice site, but they had their own. They did so much clinical trial work that they had their own research coordinator, and that really helped. So I think looking at sites that already have some research infrastructure in place, you can often tap onto that. Once again, if there's good, you know, if there's goodwill between you and them. And ask if you can sort of use a little bit of the time of an existing research coordinator person for some of that documentation and regulatory, and then potentially as funding comes in, sort of support them. Now, one thing that I did do as the trial went on, I was so incredibly grateful for all the sites for their help. So every when every holiday season came around, I would send out holiday gifts to all the, the practices. And like one year it was surgical scrub tack, t- caps that were like fire that had embroidered fires and their personal names on them. And then there was pens one year that must've been a, a lean year. And then there was another year, I think, I, I can't remember. We did different like gifts every year. I would gift them cupcakes, you know, when they would, and that wasn't funded by the trial per se, because you obviously don't want to incentivize sites to enroll inappropriately, but at the same time, it was sort of just personal funds of mine where I was just so grateful that I would thank them when they reached 50 patients or hundred patients or whatnot. And 
And so a lot of it was just, you know, the, the kindness of others and I can't thank people enough. So, so, you know, think about your friends and your, um, and their contacts and think and talk to them and ask them. And I would say, you'd be surprised if people see, um, something that they want to be part of, they often will find ways to make it work. Um, and particularly if you make it easy on your end. So if you're in, enlisting help from another site, we really try to the best of our ability to make it super easy for them. And having somebody on our end, Melissa, in, our, in my case, who really tried to grease the wheels and make it so it was just so effortless for them to enroll a patient, be incredibly responsive, be so responsive to them. And so that any, any time that they have a question or any time they have a potential patient to enroll, it's just easy for them to do it. And that's also a big tip. Um, don't, don't try and give them a whole nother job to do. That's, that's difficult. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Obviously people, uh, appreciate the goodwill in reverse, right? Right. So, um, you know, I think you were also talking earlier about, you know, how your mentors were important to this process. What specifically advice would you give in terms of what type of mentors to approach or how did you know when you found a good mentor for you for this kind of a trial when yeah. you were getting going? It's um you so you know it's hard. We're in divisions where we're pretty small typically and it's rare that somebody is truly does exactly what you do or has experience with exactly what you're wanting to do. So you have to get a little creative and that might mean looking outside of your division, maybe to another surgical division, if it's a surgical trial, have they done similar work, similar projects? Can I look at their, like, how did they run a protocol if they've run a protocol? For me, you know, Daniela Matei, who many people may know from being the PI of 258, GOG 258, was at IU at the time alongside me and is a brilliant medical oncologist and clinical trialist. And she was enormously helpful in telling and advising me and things inspiration from my prior mentors who'd innovated things, people like John Vargas were incredibly helpful. But I think looking outside the box a little bit is important. Uh, most people will say that, you know, in GUN oncology, they have mentors who aren't just GUN oncologists, but who are outside, you know, so I would reach out a lot to, to Dr. Nadim Abu Rustam, whom I, you know, have just so much admiration. I would often email him, ask other people in the field who've already done some work in this ask them questions, ask them for their mentorship. Most people are extremely happy to offer help and support to others. They see it as a huge compliment that you would recognize them and are very gracious. It's been my sort of universal experience with that of reaching out to others who are well-known already in the field. And so don't be shy to reach out to find mentors outside of your own division and institution, but, and then look, you know, at other potential divisions that might actually pair up really nicely. I would also recommend going to the protocol office of your institution and really speaking closely to the people who run the protocols and the regulatory side of it. Uh, when I was a ju very junior in this study, I really knew nothing about how the regulatory of how to run a trial. The little things like, you know, you have to have checklists for eligibility criteria, for example. You can't just look at a chart and say, yes, she's eligible. You actually have to have a check form that has all the eligibility checklists. You have to sign off on each one of them. You have to have supporting documentation for each one of those eligibility check in the checklist, and you have to sign it. And, you know, so there are all sorts of varieties of layer upon layer of regulatory that you may not know about. And I certainly didn't when I started, but are critically important 
to be part of your trial and you'll get shut down as I experienced if you don't have them. And so go at the beginning and get mentorship and support actually from people who run trials on the ground, which is often found if you're at a cancer center in the protocol review office, or they'll have their own sort of their own name at your institution in the cancer center. If you're part of a cancer center, they're the people who kind of know what's what needs to be done and what your trial has or doesn't have, have them look at your trial, your documents and make sure that everything looks okay. And they can kind of teach you a lot. So that's sort of a direction of mentorship that may not be obvious because um, we tend to think about looking for people who are more senior to us in some way and other physicians, but in actual fact, you can learn a lot about how to run a trial well from people who are on the ground <laughs> and already around you. Yeah, that's a very good point. Probably in all parts of our job, right? Yes, <laughs> in all parts job. of our job. <laughs> so I think another subject that can be a little bit challenging and, and heartbreaking for new investigators is when they've poured their heart and soul into something and spent innumerable hours writing their protocol and it's just shot down and you're feeling like, what did I miss here? So do you have any insight or personal experience or how you were able to overcome a similar challenge? Yeah, yeah. So um, but things actually got up and going pretty well for my trial. You know, I think I wrote the submission for the protocol in January of 2012. And then it, the first patient was enrolled in August of 2012. However, in May of 2013, the trial was temporarily shut down by our instant by the IU sort of uh, protocol office. And the reason was, I had reached out to, you know, I'd, we were running the trial and we had a couple of sites at the few sites at that point and it was going well, but I had this sense that maybe we needed to be doing some more regulatory. I didn't, I was very naive about what I thought if I got it through the protocol review committee and it went through the IRB, that's good. I'm good to go. Yeah. Right. You know, what more could I need to do? But there was a lot more than I needed to be doing. And I didn't know that. And so I, we asked for a little audit from the protocol office and they looked at our trial and they were horrified and they shut it down on the spot. Now, now to be clear, we were not doing anything that was dangerous or reckless. Nobody was harmed in the trial. Uh, there was no, it was no malpractice per se. It's just that from a regulatory standpoint, it was really not where it needed to be. But, you know, it feels intensely personal and there were literally tears on my part. I mean, I remember getting sent, you know, I'm looking at it now in front of me, I pulled it up. It was hard to even open the file. You know, it's this sort of certification of, um, of non-compliance, which just feel like the language just feels awful. And, you know, some of the language was, you know, general lack of regulatory oversight by the lead institution for other sites. And, and, you know, it was because we didn't have all of those things that I alluded to before, you know, we didn't have, you know, eligibility checklists. We didn't have a sign-off sheet for all of the people at each of the sites who have enrolled in the trial and they didn't have verification that they had had trial had training in the protocol. All of the things that I think many people listening probably know are important or have done, have signed or, you know, have had signed when they put it in front of them um, for other studies. But I didn't realize I needed all of this because I was doing, I thought, a good job. I was being earnest. I was enrolling patients earnestly, but I wasn't documenting what needed to be documented, the adverse events, the, all of the things that are just so critically important in safely running a clean trial and having documented verification of all of that. And so we paused for what felt like three years, but was only three months. Um, and it, it, it was really hard. And, and it felt like time was standing still because 
I was, I had this sense of, we have to keep enrolling. We have to keep enrolling, but I couldn't. And I didn't know when it was going to be over. Eventually they helped educate us and put in place all of the things that we needed to have. And they helped. And Melissa aid being who she was, was so incredibly organized. She, we had folders and binders and tabs, and it was, look, this trial was run after that moment so cleanly uh, that it's such a, and it taught me so much about running trials that I didn't know before. And I feel really confident and proud in the results. We can you know, verify the results. We, it's there in black and white, adverse event reporting, et cetera. It's all there. And so that wouldn't have been there if I hadn't have gone through that. I think what I learned from going through that is it's, you know, you learn about yourself, your own personality. Most of us listening in here are surgeons. We're very agentic. We see something that's a problem. We go in there and we fix it, right? Like we do, we do. That's not what running a trial is like, unfortunately. There's a lot of other people. There's a lot of slowness. There's a lot of these, we, you can't just exact change. And so you have to learn to be patient. You have to learn to let other people have their contributions. You may think their contribution, you may think that their recommendation is silly or unnecessary. It doesn't matter. It's have it's going to happen. And <laughs> you're going to have to accept that. And it's probably going to make your trial better, honestly, in the end. And so learning that about yourself and learning that about others um, and being generous to others and patient and understand that in research things are slower. The other thing I think I learned was just, you know, you feel this fear. It's almost like FOMO. You know, I'd see other sites at this time presenting data on Sentinel nodes with Firefly, et cetera. And I'd feel like, oh, you know, I'm with, but, but, you know, I'm missing out on my opportunity here because I'm in this quagmires of this shutdown trial. And, and the reality is just take your time, do the work well, do it properly. And it will, you the product will speak for itself. You know, try not to get caught up in that fear of missing out kind of fear that feeling that we get when, because there are many people working on the same things that we're working on, but with different angles. So there's room for all of us to do all of our work at all of our own pieces. Um, so that's kind of what I learned from that experience is, you know, it, it will happen. It's a good thing. It will make your trial better. Um, there are ways to avoid it happening. As I mentioned before, in the onset of the trial, you know, when you're first designing your trial, look to those resources in your protocol office to help you with study design before you start enrolling patients. Don't assume because the IRB said it's okay for you to start enrolling that your trial is perfect as is, um, because there's always something that can be done to make it better. But you know, even if it gets going and you get a flag from the DSMC or some other review or some other audit, it's okay. Don't take it personally. It's the science. It's the trial that they're criticizing. It's not you personally. <laughs> and um, keep, yeah, just keep, keep your head about you keep going and it will eventually come through. Yeah, that's great advice. I think um, we all struggle sometimes with patience, right? Sometimes it's hard to sit on your hands <laughs> right. and wait while you have to. And then I think, you know, specifically since we are focusing on a surgical trial today, obviously, um, could you explain how you ensured that sites um, that were on the study understood the protocol you had put forth? Did you have training yeah. video? Like what, was, yeah. your, what yeah. was your approach to that? So it's a really, you know, surgical trials are hard to run because how it's not like a drug, right? Where, you know, if I give a, a bevacizumab, it's the same bevacizumab that you give at your site. So it's going to have the same effect if I prescribe it than if you prescribe it. That's not true for surgery. 
And we all know that we're all different as surgeons, not necessarily better or worse, although there is a continuum of skill. And so what you want to have assessed and ensured for a clinical trial is competency. And so how do you assess that competency? And in some surgeries, there are competency assessment tools already in place. For our, for this is a, was a very novel technique, obviously. And so there was no consensus and there was no competency assessment tool in place. There is now, by the way, for this particular technique, but not for many other techniques out there. And so what we did was, um, so I made sure that we, yes, we had a video of how to perform the technique. For every new site that came on, I traveled in person to that site and I sat down with the investigator, the lead investigator at that site. And we went through not only the protocol, but the video. We then stayed on until the next day when there was, they had to have a case already lined up for the next day. And I would do a case observation. And I was doing the case observation for two reasons. One, to verify skill with the technique. Uh, which once again, novel technique, these surgeons had never done this before. (laughs) So that had to be verified. And number two, to verify the gold standard, which was complete lymphadenectomy. Um, So I wanted to make sure that the sites were really feel had good competency in completion lymphadenectomy, uh, including periodic lymphadenectomy, because that was so important. There's no point. It was no validity to the data if, you know, the gold standard wasn't really a gold standard that was to which this was being applied. So there were, so that had to happen. And then any new surgeon who came on at that site during the trial had to go through a process of verification by the, that site PI. So that site PI had to watch their first case, verify they were injecting correctly, verify they were mapping correctly, verifying that they were performing the completion lymphadenectomy. Um, So that occurred with every site. And then every year I would visit the sites And I would audit them, but not, we weren't necessarily going to the operating room, but we would go to look at their regulatory and make sure that everything was in place and thank them profusely again for their involvement in the trial, usually bring gifts. Um, And uh, so, yes, so I do think with surgical trials that are multi-center, it's critically important to develop some sort of competency assessment as part of both your enrollment and audit of the process so that you can ensure quality of your results. I get the impression that your division director would have had to been very supportive of the hopping in and out of, of your regular schedule to fly all over the United States. Part, yeah, I mean, that was part of the beauty of that early part of my career. I had a little bit more, fly- I wasn't going to do other things at that point in time. And I had a little bit of bandwidth. I know a lot of the sites were actually in the Midwest, so they were driving distance. <laughs> we would often drive in on a Sunday, watch a Monday case and, and kind of leave. But yeah, I mean, looking back, we definitely, I definitely had good flexibility um, to be able to do that in that existing job. And that is something that, um, you know, I didn't have to spend the time crunching through the data sheets, which might, cause I had a study coordinator, but that particular piece I did have to work on. So once the trial got established in the later years, our study coordinator would do some of those visits by herself because it was once again, just auditing rather than um, verification of procedure skill. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess speaks to the team approach um, mm-hmm. and also the team approach of your division, right? That that's, they that's right. To succeed. That's right. I mean, ultimately, ultimately, we talked before about study coordinator, you know, having a research person in your division, whatever you name that person who is sort of available and 
able to help with unfunded work, um, research type work. That's just such a huge, generous gift that a division can do that reaps rewards in academic success. And then understanding flexibilities like this in terms of needing to give faculty time to do their their work. Um, and not, not all of that time can come on nights and weekends. Sometimes it has to come during waking hours, working hours. For sure. So I think another question that might be helpful to the wider audience is location. You know, where, where do these trials come from? Where can they be successfully run? What happens if I'm not already in an academic setting with a well-established clinical trials program? What advice do you have for those listeners? So I think it's important to not be not feel if you're in a more community-based practice environment that you can't answer these surgical questions yourself and and lead it be a PI and an investigator-initiated study because often you do have in place a lot of the things that you need. Um, you may not have a big phase one, you know, drug trial unit there, but you probably have an IRB. You probably have a research office there at your institution inside the hospital. Um, there's probably, you may be in a practice, many of you may be in a practice where there are some research personnel who can assist you. So it's still just a matter of thinking, okay, how do I write up the protocol idea? Where are my IRB and protocol approval offices and get that through that that avenue. And then where at my institution or outside of my institution, can I get some funding once again, through foundational type grants? There's a lot of them for, for young practices. So I would say you don't need to be in a formal academic job uh, where, you know, I say you've got .edu after your email address. You can be in any kind of practice to be able to start a trial. It may be logistically challenging with respect to resources and time, but it's not prohibitive. Um, you just really kind of need, I would say, the key personality is that one right-hand person, man or woman, um, to be your administrative regulatory help, some funding. Uh, it doesn't have to be a huge amount. Once again, we had about a little more than $100,000 to run all of fires with more than 450 patients. So you don't need a huge amount of funding, but you need that one person and some help and support within the institution in terms of how to get regulatory up and going. And you can answer these questions yourself. You don't have to wait for the universities to do it. I love that enthusiasm. Um, you know, I think the reality is a lot of people more and more have got, you know, hybrid or community-based practices, but they, because of the fact that they're so clinically busy, they are encountering real surgical problems every day and perhaps are maybe poised in a great position to answer some of the questions that we all want answered and don't know how to do it. Exactly. Those are the practices where you're seeing your patients, you're potentially enrolling them and where some incredible surgery and surgical innovations are being done. So there's that they're the perfect environments in which to run. I, they don't have to be huge multi-center trials. They can be just trials within your own site, um, but it, you can absolutely do it. Um, uh, and I would encourage you to think about doing that and, and, and writing that up and teaching us all how to do things better. All right. Well, that's fantastic. This has been a great talk. Is there anything else that perhaps we haven't touched on that would be good pearls of wisdom for the audience? I would say it doesn't really matter if the trial that you run is a success by anybody else's definition. I think if you have a question about which you're passionate, you should do everything you can to invest that passion into seeing that through because it will give you 
that injection of satisfaction in your career that can be hard to come by with a lot of other things that we do. We do get satisfied. As surgeons, we see a lot of immediate gratification in what we do. And this is certainly a more delayed gratification, but it really does to have to know that you sort of contributed a piece of the puzzle of helping to take, to understand how to better take care of women with cancer is just a hugely gratifying experience. So it's well worth the investment. And, and so it sees that passion and commitment and do everything you can to chase it. That's amazing. Thank you. The information presented is that of the contributing faculty and presenters and does not necessarily represent the views of the Society of Gynecologic Oncology or any named company or organization providing financial support. Specific therapies discussed may not be approved and or specified for use as indicated by the faculty or presenters. If you like what you heard today, please let us know by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and hitting the follow button wherever you're listening. If you have suggestions for future SGO on-the-go podcasts, please email us at education at sgo.org. 